Today's sermon is going to be um, one of those where I am going to encourage you all to push back a bit. If you think I've gone too far with something I'm saying, say something. If you disagree, challenge me. Um, I believe that, that I believe I, I have stumbled across something which has been uh, made clear to me more powerfully. It's not a new thing. This is no like, you know, the church has missed us for 2,000 year type of secret. This is just um, clarity on an issue. Track with me here. Think with me here. Challenge me here um, if I'm off. I wouldn't, I wouldn't preach this if I'm going heretical, but I'm walking up to the line. I'm kidding. I'm not that close to the line. Today's sermon is titled Unbelievable. I would have preferred to title it Unbelievable Privileges and Responsibilities, but that is one heck of a long title to fit on the top of your bulletin. Unbelievable. Let me ask you a question. Who is in a more advantageous position? A disciple in John 16 or you? Let's look at them. Disciple with Jesus. Last Supper. They're going to be walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. These are 11 guys. Remember one of them ran away to betray Jesus. These are 11 guys. They saw water turn to wine. Healing of an invalid. Feeding of around 10,000 people from morsels of a kid's snack, restoring sight to a blind man, raising a dead man to life, healing of the nobleman's son. They had their feet washed by Jesus. They listened to him. They talked to him. They asked him questions. They're eating with him in person. Then there's us, 2,000 years removed. Nobody's ever seen Jesus with their own eyes, who's sitting here today. We have almost certainly never seen a miracle performed of the physical nature that these guys have seen. I don't know about you, but I've never drank wine that was changed from water to wine never had my feet washed by Jesus. I can't sit at his feet in person and talk to him. Who's in a more advantageous position? The guys who walk with Jesus in Galilee, or the folks of God's Grace Bible Church who ain't seen a man, he's been gone for 2,000 years at the Father's right hand. Who's in the more advantageous position? We are. But sometimes don't we think they are? If only... I could have just had dinner at the Last Supper. If only I could have hung out with Jesus for like 10 minutes. If only I could have been in the boat in the storm. Oh my goodness. He's walking on the water. I'd be, oh man, I'd be golden. We would, you would hear sermons you wouldn't believe. I would leave here and I would be sharing my faith in ways you couldn't imagine. I would be, I would be seeing people come to faith in ways you couldn't comprehend. If only I could have walked with Jesus in Galilee, I would be so much better off. Maybe you guys would know God's will more clearly. Maybe we'd be motivated to, to spend more time in God's word. Maybe it would all seem more real if we could have just walked with Jesus in Galilee. Today Jesus talks about that. Who's in the more advantageous position? You guys know it, so let's just close in prayer, huh? Jesus is going to tell us that we are in a far more advantageous position to the disciples in John 16. Notice I keep saying John 16. They catch up at Pentecost. But track with me here. Mindset of the disciples. These are guys who are reeling. These aren't people sitting around having some seminary-style theological discussion. Today, Jesus, let's debate the nature of predestination and monergism and synergism. Yes, that sounds good. And they're, you know, smoking pipes and drinking coffee and things you do in seminary. I never smoked a pipe. These were real, live, honest-to-goodness, ordinary folk. Fishermen, tax collectors... Your average working class Joes. And they're sitting with Jesus, and Jesus has just told them that he's going to be leaving them. They have to abide in him. They have to love one another as he's loved them. The world's going to hate him. One's going to betray him. Peter's going to deny him. Tells him, I'm going to leave you again, and it's to your advantage. And these guys are doing this. <gasps> they're shaking. There's queasiness. There's freaking out. In a little bit, they're going to run away from Jesus. These are, these are ordinary men. Ordinary people. Like, we're ordinary people. It's not like Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. And John says, oh, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. It is to our advantage, and we rejoice in this. Let us pray. No, these are guys saying, what the heck are you talking about? It's to our advantage. Where are you going? What are we going to do? And that's what I'm going to show you, because that's what they say. In John 16, starting in verse 4 in the Pastor John Tripp translation. I'll read the ESV instead. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart nevertheless. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, if you've been paying attention the last few weeks, verse 5 is a problem. Verse 5 says, I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Well, if you look back at 1336, you'll see that, in fact, Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? If you look at chapter 14, verse 5, you'll see Thomas said, Lord, we do not where are you go- know where you are going. What the heck is going on here? It's important to understand. We have a couple options. First, the Bible's messed up, and it's not what it claims to be, and then we can cancel the car wash and go home. Second option is Jesus has a bit of amnesia, the perfection thing has gone to pot, and we got another little problem, and we can cancel the car wash, and we can all go home. Or there's a third explanation. What's happening is we're taking too literal of a reading here. Imagine a little boy sitting out front with a fishing rod and a tackle box. He's going fishing with his dad. And his dad comes out, not wearing the jeans and the shirt of a fisherman, but a suit and a tie. And his son looks at him, and he says, Dad, where are you going? You understand, the kid's not asking where his dad's going because he really cares where he's going. He's saying, why aren't we going fishing? I thought we were going fishing. Jesus is saying, you don't really care about where I'm going. You care about how this is going to affect you and the problems you're going to have. And we know that when you look at the next verse, because sorrow has filled their hearts. So these guys are messed up. Then Jesus says something crazy. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Do you really believe that you and I are in a more advantageous position than the disciples of John 16? We're going to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the lives of the world and see why we're in an advantage. But let's unpack who the Helper is, who the Holy Spirit is. If we're honest, a lot of people think of the Holy Spirit kind of as Tinkerbell. you got God the Father, mysterious, unseen God, God the Son, I'm going with the Peter Pan motif, bear with me a minute, kind of like the happy Peter Pan that hops around and takes care of people, and then Tinkerbell is the Holy Spirit, kind of this mystical fairy dust version of God. I think the Holy Spirit is the most highly neglected um, aspect of the Trinity, of the Godhead, that we have. The Holy Spirit is God, fully God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three natures. The Holy Spirit is God. If you remember back to John 14, 16, Jesus says, if you don't remember, I'll read it to you. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The word another, as it's used in the Greek here, is a word that means of the exact same essence or kind. It means he's going to send you another of me. You know what that means? God's coming. God's going, and God's coming. Another what? Another helper. You ever hear the term paraclete? Paraclete is a term that's translated in my uh, my translation as helper. In yours you may see it as comforter. It can mean teacher or guide. A paraclete, in the time this was written, really meant a legal advisor who pled a person's case in a court of law. You can flip there if you like, or I'll summarize it for you, but in 1 John 2, verse 1, Jesus is referred to as a paraclete. Jesus is referred to, basically, as our court-appointed defender. He's also the judge. So when you stand before a judge, and you're guilty of an offense, but the court-appointed defense attorney happens to also be the judge who died on your behalf, there's very little to fear, isn't there? It's an awesome paraclete in the court of law. Jesus is also our helper, and comforter, and teacher, and guide, and you see that play out in the lives of the disciples up to this point. You look at the ministry of Jesus in their lives and and in the lives of others around them, and you see how he helps and comforts and teaches and guides. And he's going away and he says, don't freak out because I'm going to send you another paraclete, another me, God. And he's going to dwell in you and with you. But stop and understand one word, comforter. What do you think of when you hear comforter? 
more. That fan's cooling you down. About a week ago, Charlie fell, hit his face, split his lip open, and I picked him up, and I'm patting his back. I'm telling him it's going to be okay. I'm comforting him, right? I think sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit as a uh, pick me up, pat me on the back when things are going bad. Kind of like life stinks. Like I'm having a hard time making it, and the Holy Spirit's like, oh, it's going to be okay. I don't know if it's going to be okay. He pats our back until we're okay. Now, don't miss the fact that, that God does comfort us. He doesn't figuratively or literally pick us up and pat us on the back while we're spitting disgusting things out of our face and crying, though inside you know we do that all the time. But the fuller meaning of comforter, you break the word into the two parts for the original meaning. The prefix, C-O-M, com, it means with, fortis, the root, strength. Comfort, comforter is someone who comes with strength or gives strength. What happens is this. It was a term used to refer to the equipping of a person to go out in battle. A comforter equipped people to go out in battle. It didn't just pick them up after the battle and, and give them solace. It equipped them to go out and live in the battle. We miss that when we look at the term comforter and what the Holy Spirit came to do. I'm giving you a little theology course on the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to move into this text, but understand this. The Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus, another paraclete, God in the form of the Holy Spirit, to dwell with us and in us, to help us, comfort us, teach us, and guide us. We're going to unpack this in a minute. And when we understand this more fully, we see what's to our advantage. But when we understand the responsibility that this puts upon us, it'll scare the boots off you if you're not careful. So look at these guys. From now, when Jesus is going to be betrayed, crucified, and buried in the tomb, over the three-day period he's in the tomb, what are some of the um, attributes you see in these disciples? I have eight of them. Dull of mind, weak of spirit, fearful, confused, doubting, despondent, aimless, lethargic. You ever put any of those on yourself? Don't answer out loud. Do you ever find yourself being dull of mind? Isn't that a horrible expression? Weak of spirit, fearful, confused, doubting, despondent, aimless, lethargic, have you ever been in any one of those? Maybe more than one. Nobody move your head. Let's all keep it inside. Then look at these guys after Pentecost. you understand what, Pen what happened at Pentecost? When the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples, the, the, another helper, the paraclete himself, Holy Spirit, came to dwell within the disciples. All of a sudden, they're not so dull of mind, weak of spirit, fearful, confused, doubting, despondent, aimless, lethargic, and I think of Peter. Guys sitting, we'll see in a few weeks, sitting by the, the coal fire. Aren't you one of his disciples? No. A little bit later. Yes, you are. You're one. No, I'm not. Are you with you? I don't even know the guy. Denies Jesus three times. Peter. You go into Acts, this guy's going crazy. Something happened. Something got into him. Yeah, something did get into him. He's out proclaiming the truth to the point. Remember how he died we talked about last week? Crucified upside down. How do you go from denying Jesus to a little servant girl to being crucified upside down? Something happened, didn't it? All these guys ran away. Garden of Gethsemane, they come to get Jesus. Ah, we're out of here. Ten of the eleven were martyred for their faith. The only one who didn't die for their faith as a martyr was John, who survived the boiling in oil. What happened? That's what we're going to talk about. Sometimes I can be dull of mind. Please don't nod your head in agreement. Sometimes I can be weak in spirit or fearful, confused, doubting, despondent, aimless, lethargic. The problem is I'm not walking the way I should walk. I'm not believing what resides in me really does. I'm not living a life of obedience. But folks, here's a really neat thing. In the life of a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells. That was a promise of Jesus. If you believe in me, another helper will come and live within you. That's a very difficult concept to grasp. God, himself, creator, sustainer, redeemer of all things, is somehow living within me. Ain't that an awkward thought? It's a very true fact. Sometimes we don't believe it, and I think one of the reasons we don't believe it is because we don't fully experience it. Now, why is it when we come to faith, it's not like we have a, this, this weird, like, Superman transition where all of a sudden it's like, you know, or the Amazing Hulk, you know, it's just a raw, it all changes, and all of a sudden you're like a Holy Spirit living going on. It doesn't go down like that, does it? You come to faith, and it's, it's not like I woke up the next morning, and all of a sudden I was speaking in King James English, and I'm calling up everyone, you know, all I can do is just speak words that come out that I can't even control because the Holy Spirit's doing it, and people are coming to faith like they did in the book of Acts, and I have no fear, and that didn't happen. 
But little by little, day by day, month by month, year by year, as I begin to walk in obedience to Christ, remember that abiding stuff in, in John 15? I start to realize the inconceivability of God living in me is true. I start to see things happen that I can't explain. I, I start to witness things happening in and through me that are incomprehensible, dare I say miraculous, because they're not things that we can do. And you all have had it happen too. If you love Jesus, and I've seen it happen, the hard thing is we don't always see it in our lives. Do you care that you don't walk in perfect obedience to God? If you care, you realize that's a miraculous event. If you believe in Jesus, you realize that's a miraculous event. If you have a desire for other people to know Jesus, that's a miraculous event. These are things that on your own you cannot do. They only happen because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. So how do we live a more robust life in the Holy Spirit? How do we start doing the amazing things? Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Well, I ain't saying it, man. I got questions. I want answers. At least these disciples could say to you, Jesus, where are we going? And you say, well, follow me. It's easier than saying, where are we going? And you say, the way we hear from God... The way we experience the power of the Holy Spirit is by walking in obedience. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Why? Well, see, now I put them away. A lot of people go with a health and wealth approach. If you obey my commands, you'll be rich and live a long time. I like that. It's just not the way that Jesus teaches it. If you don't obey me, you will be shamed at church. We will make you stand up and tell everyone the bad things you did this week. Be very afraid. If you don't obey me, I will kill you. You may not go to heaven. None of this stuff is true. We obey him because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. First John. When we understand how much Jesus loves us, what he desires for us, what he did for us, we start to walk in obedience. And as we do, we experience the reality of the Holy Spirit living in our lives. And we... S- <laughs> Perfect. And we experience the advantageousness of our position. Jesus can only be in one place at one time when he lived. You understand that? The Holy Spirit can be everywhere all at once. It would be neat to read the Bible in the morning with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, come and sit down. I'll get you a cup of coffee. Let's read John 16 together. Can you explain it to me, please? Could you imagine what my sermons would be like? It's like, so this week I was having breakfast with Jesus, and he showed me something amazing. Well, guess what? When we read this book, God lives in us, and he will teach us. That's crazy talk. No, it's not crazy talk. That's the truth. The problem we have is we jumble so much sin in our minds, in our lives, that we quench the spirit. There are these things we're called to, like Bible reading, prayer, worship, sharing our faith, fellowship, stewardship, fasting, etc. They're called spiritual disciplines. You find them throughout the Bible. It's a matter of walking in obedience. And God says, guys, look, I love you so much. I'm going to give you choices. I'm going to give you consequences. I'm going to give you rewards. You've got to choose what you want to do. Trust me. I want what's best for you. I know what's best for you. I'll show you what's best for you. Do you want to follow me? Do you want to obey me? Make your decision. And we neglect obedience to God. And we say, but God, I want to know what you want me to do. Well, why are you talking to me? God Hello? Do you love me? Where'd you go? The reality is we've neglected what he's called us to. We failed to abide, and then all of a sudden we're we're peeved off that he's not doing what we want. As we walk in obedience to God, we experience the reality of the Holy Spirit living in us. We begin to be taught by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, helped by the Holy Spirit, in such clarity that it would blow the minds of the disciples in John 16. They couldn't grasp the reality of what a life with the Holy Spirit would be like. Truth be told, folks, I don't think we can grasp it fully either. But as we move the distractions and walk in obedience and trust that God knows what he's talking about. You know the passage that says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is a man who takes refuge in him. He ain't kidding. If we're willing to walk in obedience to God, if we're willing to abide, if we're willing to love one another as he has loved us, we will begin little by little 
but undoubtedly to experience the reality of the Holy Spirit living in us, you will read your Bible and you will see things you have never seen before. It will go from the Charlie Brown teacher dictation version. Now, blah, 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 wah, 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 wah. You ever watch Charlie Brown? You know the teacher talks? You ever feel like that reading the Bible? Wah, 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 wah. That's what it's going to sound like if the Holy Spirit isn't teaching to you. And this isn't some mystical, weird thing I'm talking about. This is you sit down in the morning. God, some of this stuff is a little crazy to me. I know it's real, I know it's true, I doubt. Help me with my unbelief. But God, I know this is your word, inerrant and inspired. I know that the Holy Spirit lives in me, and I know one of the reasons the Holy Spirit's in there is to teach me your truth. That's what we just read here. Would you please guide me in all truth, Father? Whatever you pray in my will, you'll receive, right? You start reading this stuff with that mindset. You start memorizing scripture. If you can't memorize it, meditate on it. Pick a verse and chew on it throughout the course of the day. You ever have the Holy Spirit pull a verse to mind at just the right time? You ever be in conversation with someone and, oh my goodness, where did that come from? This is all the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. And here's all I can give you with this, folks. We won't experience it unless we walk in obedience, but if we walk in obedience, you will be amazed by what you experience. Look at what happens to the disciples. Our options are dull of mind, weak of spirit, fearful, confused, doubting, despondent, aimless, and lethargic, or, wow, do amazing things. Do miraculous things. See people come to faith, grow in our faith in amazing ways, live with a peace that transcends all understanding, live with an eternal perspective, see things from God's perspective, be comforted and guided and equipped all along the way. The question is, which way do you want to do it? Our way or His way? God doesn't force it on us, but He gives us one of the greatest blessings you could ever imagine, the most advantageous position that can be comprehended. God Himself dwells within us. Now here comes the problem part. You ready? Those who are given much of him, much will be required. Luke 12, right? Track with me here. Verse 8. What does the Holy Spirit do? Somebody read that. And when he comes, he will what? Three things. Convict the world of sin, and righteousness, and judgment. And this is where we're going to have a little bit of attention. You ready? When Jesus lived, one of the things Jesus did was convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He lived his life, he proclaimed the truth, and people were confronted with the light. Not all men loved the light, did they? But some did, and many came to faith. Jesus goes away. Who's going to carry on this ministry of conviction of sin, of righteousness or unrighteousness, and judgment? Who's going to carry on that job, that function? The Holy Spirit, right? John 14... 15 through 17. It says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for what? He dwells with you and will be in you. Okay. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In us. How does the Holy Spirit convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment? Do you see where I'm going here? I don't like this. This bothers me. I have had a lot of conversations with a lot of people this week, and it's frustrating me. I'm wrestling with it immensely. I can't get around the fact that the Holy Spirit works through us to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. What does that mean if I keep my mouth shut and fail to abide? I can't give you a complete answer, but let's chew on that tension for a minute. You and I aren't called to be living sacrifices just to make God smile. You and I don't live lives of obedience and follow the Good Shepherd to get a smiley face on our heaven scorecard. You and I are called to live lives of obedience to abide, to trust, to proclaim. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, God in his, in his perfect knowledge, sovereignty, has for some crazy reason chosen us as a primary instrument through which the world will be convicted of sin, hear the good news, and be able to come to faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Paraphrases, how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless they preach? How will they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news? How do people come to faith? They hear it. 
How do they hear it? Put your hand up. Everybody put your hand up. That's how they hear it. You see this? Does it get a little scary to you? Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, 20, go out and do what? Make something. Make disciples. You know that abiding stuff in 15? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, verse 16, that you should go and bear fruit, and that what do you think should happen? Your fruit should abide. Guys, you know what Jesus just told us to do? To go out and make disciples. That he is going to give us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, and then through us convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Oh boy. Do you know what that means? How often do you sit and think, well, if I don't share my faith, it really doesn't matter. Like, if I'm not walking to obedience to God, it's not a big deal because God's going to do what He wants to do. So, if I just simply never read my Bible, I simply never trust God and, and talk to someone about Jesus, By we'll talk about how we do that in a minute. But if I never do it, God's going to do what God's going to do because God's sovereign and He already chose people to go to heaven, so it's really irrelevant what I do. You ever go with that? I know a lot of people do. They might not think it through that far, but it's what they do. What happens if we don't share our faith? What happens if people don't hear? Do you see this frightening tension we're presented with? You and I do not have ultimate responsibility for a person coming to faith. We do not have ultimate responsibility for a person coming to faith. We don't have the ultimate responsibility for all people hearing the gospel. Okay? But you can't walk around this uncomfortable tension that if we keep our mouth shut, not everyone will hear the good news. The Bible says very clearly that God's will is that none should be lost, but all should be saved. That is God's preference. That is God's ultimate desire. Is everyone in heaven after they die? Well, this guy Rob Bell wrote a book, tries to explain it. you got to dance around scripture to make that happen. No. There are people that do not go to heaven by choice. God, I think we, we have these difficult doctrines of election, of predestination, free will. Sometimes you dabble in them and, and try to figure, all right, well, if God knows already before you're born if you're going to heaven or hell, what does it really matter? Well, God transcends time. God knows because he's seen it. Now, don't think that anything can happen outside of God's uh, control. Nothing happens outside of God's control. You can't thwart God's ultimate plan, but if God's plan, which seems clear as day to me right here, is that he would send the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. The primary vessel through which the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment is us. And our failure to walk in obedience to God has consequences. And I'm dabbling loosely on what those consequences are, but I want to let that tension rest with you. Because the reality of the situation is, as American Christians, we go with the mindset way too often of, if I don't share my faith, God will clean up my mess. If I don't proclaim the good news in a lost world, God will proclaim it some other way. If I, don't, if I don't love my neighbor and trust God to use me in that relationship, he'll find somebody else or he'll just send them an angel while they're sleeping on the night before they die and they'll come to faith. Here's my challenge to you. Find that for me in Scripture, please. Help me out. Take, take that uncomfortable burden off of me. Help me not feel the urgency of needing to share my faith in a lost world because I don't like it. I want to do what I want to do, and I want God to just fix everything and be done with it, because I can't do this. I don't love everybody like I'm supposed to love everybody. I'm scared to tell some people about Jesus. I don't want to tell some other people about Jesus, to be honest with you. I could select people to go to heaven, and I wouldn't select everybody. It doesn't work, because I'm dull of mind and weak of spirit and lethargic, and here's what happens. God says to me, good. You feel inadequate for the task? Good. You don't think you can do it? You're right. You feel like you're going to mess up? Every time you will. John, you can't bring somebody to faith? Now you're getting it. Well, God, what do you want me to do? Abide. How? Obey me. Well, what do you want me to do? Love me with your whole mind, soul, heart, and strength. How, God? Let's start with the basics. Come to know me through my word. Let me talk to you. Pray. Talk to me. Share with me your concerns. Let me speak to you. 
fellowship with one another and be encouraged by one another. Love one another. But God, I want people to hear about you. Don't worry so much about that, he says to me. But God, I want them to know. Oh, I want them to know more. Well, what do I do? Love them. How, God, do you want me to stand on the street corner and say, you're going to go to hell if it's not for Jesus? But no, John, chill out. Chill out, trust me. Well, God, what do I do? Love them. How do I love them? Go over and say hello. Have dinner with them. See a need in their life? Meet the need. They need a ride? Give them a ride. Wash a car. Cut their grass. Smile and say hello. Well, God, how's that going to work? Oh, trust me, it works. How? Because it looks weird. You see, John, God says to me, if you live such a good life among these people in the lost world, they're going to see your good deeds and they'll come and glorify me on the day of Christ Jesus because they're going to see something in you that they can't explain. Well, what are they going to see, God? They're going to see me. But how? Chill out, John. Go back to the first thing. Abide. But God, I'll be honest. What if I don't want to? Well, then there are consequences. What are they? Do you really want to know? Yeah. Take a look in the book. No, God, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't make me as a primary vessel through which you're going to proclaim your good news? Why, John? Well, because you, you wouldn't. You, you never do that, really. Remember Ezekiel? I called him a watchman. I said, Ezekiel, go share my message. If you don't share it, their blood's on your hands. Don't worry about how they respond to it, but you share it. If you share it and they repent, that's awesome. If you share it and they don't repent, that's okay for you too. But you better share it. Now, folks, I'm not saying if we're not sharing our faith, we're not going to heaven. You're in through Christ. It's not works-based. But I'm saying if we don't share our faith, there are consequences. What would have happened if Jonah never went to Nineveh? Don't know. Do you? What would have happened if Ezekiel kept his mouth shut or if Jeremiah gave up or if Moses just ran away from Pharaoh because it was too scary? I don't know. It was fully in God's control. So then you say, well, could Moses have not gone to Pharaoh? Absolutely not, because God already knew he would. Yeah, you're right. He had to go because God knew, but God knew because he went, and God's fully in control of things. And now I've started to dabble in the deep end of the pool where God says, don't swim, folks. Here's the rope of the known. There's the rope of the unknown, the mysterious things of God. Don't distort the mysterious things of God with a misfact. Look at them. Ask God to reveal the truth more fully to you. Jesus said here, it's really difficult when you go by where you think the verse is and you're on the wrong page. It says the Holy Spirit's going to come and he will guide you into all truth. He tells him that I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And he also previously goes on to, to mention how they weren't ready to hear them. When you, when you end up having a conversation with someone about Jesus... You don't really want to start in the deep end of the pool. Ha! Nice to meet you. Let's find out, has God chosen you to go to heaven or not? What the heck are you talking about? Well, you have no choice in the matter. God already knows. Do you want to know what he knows? We know God's in control. You and I know that we can't come to faith unless God opens our eyes. The question is, how does he open our eyes? I've been speaking in the last few weeks with a guy who I came to faith through. I understand it wasn't he who brought me to faith, but God used him in the process. And I look back at that process, and it was a very interesting process. I had all sorts of barriers that stood in my way of coming to faith. I understood that God knew at that moment I would come to faith. I understood at that moment that God opened my eyes to come to faith. And I often wonder, we were talking about, well, what would have happened if you just blew me off? I said, his name's Johnny. So what would happen if you just blew me off? Or, or just, what if you were sick that day? Or, or what if you messed up? And who knows? It's nothing to be concerned about, because God has it in control been telling you a lot about my neighbors, right? Well, my neighbors came to faith on Thursday. No, they didn't. I wish they did. One of these weeks, they will. I was very convicted by the fact this week. I, I have parents who are approaching 70. I guess if, if my mom was listening, I'd say they're just past 50. A little bit past down the road. They have zero Christian influence in their life. They have never had a person other than their beloved son Share the gospel with them. How do you live in one of the most populous cities in the world and no one shares the gospel with you? They don't have Christian people in their lives who are loving them. I'm not talking about like the Jehovah's Witness version. I have some literature for you today. I'm talking about a neighbor who loves Jesus, if there are any, I don't know, who, who engages them in a relationship and just loves them and trusts God to work through that. How have they never heard? 
I look at my neighbors and I think, all right, God, do I go with the assumption if I keep my mouth shut and fail to trust you and abide and love these people that you'll just clean up the mess somewhere else? Could he? He could. Will he? Let me ask you that question. What if my neighbors have no Christian influence in their life? What if I'm it? What if I say, God, skip it. I don't really want to do it. What happens? Now here's the tension. I don't know. I can't tell you with 100% certainty what happens. I also am not prepared based on what the Bible tells me to say that God will clean it up for me because I neglected it. This is deep water I've dragged you out into. I hope I have, have given you a little bit of tension. And this is one of the reasons I don't like this sermon. I like to wrap them up neat and make them real nice and tidy. Let me leave you with this. You and I are called to abide. You and I are called to love. I don't know if you've noticed, but when you look at the world around us, this is not a country that loves Jesus, is it? How many people do you know that love Jesus? That want to walk in obedience to Christ and are just joyful and just are looking for opportunities not to manipulate, but to let God use them to bring other people to faith? How many people do you know that have a burning passion and a maturity beyond measure in their faith with Christ? There aren't a lot, are there? Why? Chew on that, would you? Could it be, could it possibly be, that there's something going on here where the Holy Spirit comes to us, God has the Holy Spirit live in us as believers. God calls us watchmen. Go back to Ezekiel. Paul says, I have become all things to all men so that some might be saved. Paul knows he's not saving anybody. It's not his own work. It's a work that God does, but God does through believers primarily. Folks, we're chewing on an awkward tension here. There is a real fact that if we are unfaithful to walk in obedience to God, there are consequences for our actions. How will they believe unless they hear? You know what we say? Well, God will tell them. How will they hear unless that people go and preach? God will do it. How will they preach unless they're sent? Well, you didn't send me. I'm not a preacher or a pastor. Read the word a little closer. Folks, I think so often what we do is we say to God, God, you give us commandments, but we understand they're more like requests. We understand that, that we should obey them and it's for our best, but if we don't, it's all okay. You'll forgive us because we say we're sorry and because of Jesus, and, and you'll just clean up our messes. Well, here's my challenge to you. The Bible says very clearly that God knows the number of our days. Before you were born, God knew the day you would die, right? Who rides around without a seatbelt? Why wear a seatbelt if you already numbered your days? Who never goes to the doctor? There's no reason for a doctor if he already knows the number of your days, is there? God knows the choices we'll make, too. God transcends time. I married Laura 15 years ago. God knew I would marry her before I was born. If I just sat home in my parents' basement, I have a lot of money by now, wouldn't I? Or I, well, I, I, think, I think I may be hanging from a rope, but if I lived in my parents' basement and I just said, well, God already knows who I'm going to marry, so he'll send them. Do you think about, oh my God, I've known Laura almost 20 years. Do you think about 20 years ago as I sat in the basement, Mom, get it! And Laura's standing there. Is there somebody named John here? Yeah, why? Oh, God told me to come. I'm supposed to marry him. Do you think that would have happened? Do you think for a moment that there was a chance I wasn't going to marry Laura, though, when I was two years old? Not a chance in the world, folks. But now we're dabbling in the economy of how God works. These are deep waters I've dragged you out into now. But I want you to wrestle with this tension. When you leave here today, I want you to think about the people that God has put you in relationship with. Those friends, those friends, those relatives, those associates, and those neighbors. And you say to God, God, why have you put me in relationships with these people? Read the Gospel of John again, and you want to know your answer? So that you can be a light to the lost. How do I do it, God? Abide. God, but what if I don't do it? I'm not going to tell you exactly what happens if you don't do it. But God, does it matter? Oh, it matters. But God, don't you already know? I know. Well, God, how does that work? Other side of the ropes, folks. Stay on your side. 
Well, what do I do? Folks, grab the urgency of this. We have a responsibility. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. You cannot prevent a person from coming to faith. Don't, don't think for a minute when you leave here, well, Pastor John said if I stay home that God's going to be running frantic because he can't get done what he wants to get done. That is not at all what I'm saying. But I'm saying that if God has chosen you as an instrument through whom he works, don't just take the physical stuff and put the responsibility on yourself. Take the practical. i got a baby that lives at home. If I don't feed him, he doesn't live and thrive. Do you think for a minute that God's going to put a bottle of milk in Charlie's crib and give him Cheerios if I don't walk into the room? I have a responsibility on me. Could God give him milk and Cheerios? If I walk in and there's manna in the crib in the morning, I'm freaking out. God could put manna in the crib. But God says, John, I entrust to you this child. Care for him. God said to me when I came to faith, here's a talent. What are you going to do with it? You're going to bury it and hide it? Or are you going to share it? God says to me, you will not be able to do this on your own. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. Go out. Be a light to the lost. Abide in me. Proclaim the truth in love. The logistics of that, folks, are not that difficult. All we have to do is go out and love people, but it begins with prayer. I was, I was sharing in, in corporate prayer this morning. There's a passage in 1 Peter. Is it 4, chapter 4, verse 7, I think? And you know the question often, often throw out there to you guys, what would you do if Jesus was coming back today at 5 and you knew it, or if he was coming back Friday at 5? Do you know what Peter says we're supposed to do? Pray. First thing you do is you get up in the morning or you get down on your knees in the evening or whenever you like during the day and you say, God, my friend, relative, associate, or neighbor, they don't know you. You know they don't know you. I can't do anything about it. But I know that the Holy Spirit dwells in me and God, I want to fall before you as a living sacrifice. Would you use me? Would you give me the opportunity to love these people in ways that would have them ask why I love them so? Would you give me an opportunity to ask them a question? But would you do it in such a way that I don't feel like I have to manipulate the conversation? Because here's a really cool thing, folks. God will give you so many opportunities teed up for you in unbelievable, miraculous fashion. I have had people, I'm praying for them, they'll say to me things like, Do you really believe the Bible is true? Where did that come from? That's what I want to ask them. I know where it came from. Other times I just run through life busy as can be. Start with prayer. The poll method. Let's go with this, see if it works. Prayer, obedience, oh, abiding. Know what God has to say and do it. Love. Pray, obey, love, and what's the E? How about expect? That's how we share our faith. You and I are instruments in the hands of the Redeemer, or instruments in the Redeemer's hand. Almost tried to mess up a Paul Tripp book title there. You and I are the primary, not the sole or exclusive, but the primary vessel through whom the Holy Spirit works to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Here's why this puts us in an advantageous position. How horrible would it be to know that the world was dying of a disease and there was nothing you could do about it? The helplessness of seeing a relative perish through a terminal illness is a miserable feeling. I, I can only, only imagine what it's like to, to watch someone before your eyes decay with sickness and die and feel utterly helpless to do anything about it. What a miserable feeling. But now make it spiritual. Make it eternal. The world is perishing from a terminal illness called sin and separation from God. We know it. We've been cured from it. On our own, we can't do anything about us about it. But God says to us, I got a pill for you to share. I give you the dispensation method. The Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Let Him guide you. Let Him speak through you. Let Him teach you and equip you and comfort you as you abide in Me, as you love the world. Be prepared. The world might hate you as you go out and tell them about this. But don't stumble because you're in an advantageous position. As we go through, as we're actually getting towards the end of the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus praying. Then we're going to see Him in the garden, betrayed and arrested. He's going to be crucified, He's going to be buried, and then He's going to come back. Folks, it is to our advantage that Jesus went away because if he, didn't went, if he didn't go away, we would not have been forgiven for our sins. We would not stand righteous before God. We would not have that bridge covered and be able to walk into the Father's presence. You do understand, when God looks at you, he sees you through Jesus. He sees us clean and forgiven, as white as snow. 
He doesn't see us as dirty, messed up, corrupt, screwy people. He knows who we are. But he sees us through the work of Christ. And then he indwells us with the Holy Spirit. And he says to us, go, love, make disciples. When you leave here today, I'm hoping that, that I've frustrated you and confused you and it made you think a little bit because here's my challenge. I know kind of what the answer is, but here's my challenge. Prove me wrong, would you? Dig deep in the Bible. Come back and show me that it doesn't matter what we do. Come back and show me that if we keep our mouth shut, there's no consequence. Come back and show me that God will work through us or he'll work through another way. It doesn't really matter what we do. The abiding is irrelevant. The loving, not really that important. The commands are more of requests. Come back and show me that, please, because I'll rest a whole lot easier. It's a burden to bear. When Cameron was born, Laura went back to school. It was in seminary. I remember that first day she left the, I, oh, she left the house to go to school, and I'm looking at an eight-week-old child, and I am literally scared to death because I look at this, this, this thing thinking, his life is in my hands. I don't like this. I wanted to cry and call my mommy, help. But ultimately, God had it in control. Ultimately, God was going to care for him, and he was going to care for me. Don't think, don't, don't, don't minimize the burden, the responsibility we have in not only knowing what we know, but having dwell within us what we have dwell within us. But don't freak out. Folks, God's eternal plan doesn't rest in your hands. He's not sitting there going, man, I hope Kelly doesn't mess this one up. Otherwise, everything's screwed. Heaven's going to fall apart. No one's going to come to faith. Kelly, you got a big burden on you today. All of eternity rests on you. It doesn't. But we have a responsibility. He dwells in us. He tells us to go and make disciples. He tells us to abide and make fruit that abides. He says to God the Father in John 17 that he has sent us out into the world. We're in an advantageous position. We have God living with us at all time, encouraging, equipping, teaching. We also have God living in us, proclaiming, convicting, saving. You understand how cool that is? We can do what Jesus did in the world because God himself dwells in us. What I'm saying is that we can live as a light and people can be convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now those have negative connotations when I use those. What we can convict the world of is they're separated from God. God loves them. God forgives them. It's a wonderful gift we have to share. That's why it's called good news. But we have to abide to go out and proclaim. Now after we, we go downstairs today, or any time during the week, will you all do me a favor? Because I've dabbled in the deep end. If I've confused you, ask. If you disagree, challenge. Let's work through this together. My first thought with this sermon was push it off to the side. I don't want to dabble in these waters, but I kept time and time again be, being convicted of, push it out there. Push it. If I offended you because of something heretical, I apologize. I will tell everybody next week what I said that was wrong. If God offended you because we all heard something we don't like, I won't apologize for that. I do not believe that I have said anything that is offensive because I made it up. I don't like it because it puts a little more onus on us than I think we're comfortable with. But I'm confident in the fact that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, I can only speak for myself, but I'll assume it for most. It's like I often feel like I'm getting off of the teacup ride at Disney World. Things are spinning, I can't see straight, and I feel sick if I try to think about things. But God, I know as in Romans 12, you tell us that uh, you will transform our minds, that you will help us not conform to this world. But God, as we do, I, I pray you would give us clarity on, on difficult things, that you will help us understand the weighty and important matters, that you will help us not blow things off and live by assumption, but, but go ahead and, and move beyond the, the, the milk, to chew on the meat, to dabble in the deep end, to, um, to get into the weightier matters at times, because there is important substance out there. God, I, I do not understand the logistics of exactly how you do what you do, and I absolutely understand I can't. You are God, and I am a mere worm. 
my intellectual capacity is not even comparable to your awesome mind. For me to understand how a being functions who transcends time is an impossibility on the premise. But God, I do know that you have given us responsibilities, that from where we sit we have decisions to make and our actions have consequences. I do know that nothing happens outside of your control. I do know that you can take care of anything, but I do know that your commands are commands and not requests to be taken lightly. God, you command us to go out and do the impossible. You tell us to love people that we can't love. You tell us to proclaim a good news that we're scared to proclaim, and if we're honest at times, we don't know why it's such good news. You tell us the world will hate us, but we don't want to be hated. You tell us not to seek the approval of man, but Lord, there is such a part of us that just wants people to approve of us. God, would you help us? Would you allow us to know you more fully? Would you convict us of sin and remove it from our lives so we could be filled more deeply and powerfully by the Holy Spirit so we could experience what the disciples did as they went out and walked in obedience to you, as they proclaimed your truth. As Paul, the man who called himself a wretched man, lived such a powerful life, which he knew wasn't through any of his ability, but through yours. God, help us see ourselves as the guys at the table who were walking to Gethsemane in John 16. And then see ourselves as, as we become who they became. People who walk powerfully through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, help us. Help us abide. Help us obey. Help us love. Help us to know who you made us to be. Not a people who are to isolate ourselves from the world, or a people who are to conform and fit into the world, but a people who are to be in the world, but not of the world. Help us not be overburdened with a, a burden that's not ours. Eternal destinations of people don't rest fully in our hands, but yet we have that uncomfortable tension. How will they believe if they don't hear? Forgive us for our failures in the past, God. Encourage us for success in the future. And help us, as Paul says, to forget the past and strive forward, reaching, working with endurance towards eternity. God, I pray that you would, you would work powerfully in us this week, that you would convict us mightily this week. And God, most importantly, I pray that if, if anything that came out of my mouth today is heretical, that you would make a lot of people here, uh, make that clear to a lot of people here real quickly. But if it's not, God, I pray you would plan it deeply. I pray you would grow it powerfully and help us bring glory to you as we walk in obedience because we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.